Merry Christmas. My name is Brad Watson, and this is the Saturate Podcast's Advent devotional called Preparing Room. This is a 25-day reflective journey through the themes of Advent, as well as the themes of being the people God called us to be, so I hope that you will enjoy it. In addition to this devotional, we also have resources on Advent that I'd love for you to check out at saturatetheworld.com. One is the Advent Community Guide, which will help you have engaging conversations throughout this season as your community gets together. There's also crafts and coloring sheets for children, as well as alternative ways to use it with your children and family gatherings. So it's a great resource just to use with families as well. Also, we have a holiday missional community planning guide that will help leaders engage and plan for this season so that people will grow in your community in their love for God during this season, their love for one another in this season, and their love for their neighbor this season. So make sure you check both of those out. And with that, let's engage today's reflection. The Meaning of Joy This Advent season has been a delight for me as we've walked through hope and peace, and now we turn our gaze toward joy. Our our modern dictionaries define joy as a feeling of great happiness. It's essentially pleasure plus, or extra good vibes, or good feelings, but more. That's not what's meant by joy in scripture. It's not an exaggerated happiness. It's completely other. It's beyond a feeling. It's a possession, a posture, and a response to reality. And so uh, we dive into this complex theme of joy. But before we talk about shepherds and choirs of angels and a manger, we must talk about a specific character, the the epitome of Advent, the the caricature of preparing room, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. Through his life, we learn, at least in part, the meaning of joy. John the Baptist's story begins with his parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth. They were faithful, righteous, and longing people. They're expectant for God, like many of the people in Israel, that, that one day God would send the promised rescuer. That after 700 years of being conquered and exiled and ruled, God would redeem them and rule their lives. Zechariah and Elizabeth were also a longing people longing for a child. They are in the pantheon of biblical characters who struggled through the pain and the sorrow and the roller coaster of infertility. And then in the midst of, a, of this unmet expectations for a nation and for them as a couple, an angel appears to Zechariah, even as he's performing the task as a priest of reminding God of his promise, the angel makes a new promise. The time is ready. God will accomplish what he's about to accomplish. Get ready. It's coming, the angel says. Not only the rescuer, but also a son to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that the son would be like the prophets of old. He would, he would come as the precursor to the Messiah. He would prepare the way. He would be the, the Elijah for the people. John the Baptist was that promised child. His life carried special instructions and special purpose. 
His life was predicted in Isaiah 43, which says he's to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. John the Baptist was born to be that voice and born to be in the wilderness. He was to be like Elijah, and he was to remind his people of who God is and who they were called to be. He was to call them back to worship. He was to expose their false worship, their false hope, and let them know who the true God was. His entire role is to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus, as Mark says. He was to be the pointer and the marker of the coming hope and peace of God, that as people heard them, they would know rescue is coming. Can you imagine that kind of life? I mean, just talk about great expectations, right? The the son of parents that longed for a child for decades, and then you're finally just born into that family uh, that had struggled with infertility for so long, just to be that kind of a son. But even more, he's the promised son from an angel and a life that's to be the fulfillment of promises from the great prophet Isaiah that that you can read as he was growing up. He could read from the Bible the things that he was supposed to do to live a life in the pattern of the greatest prophet, Elijah. But that's exactly what he did. He called his people into the wilderness. John the Baptist called them to a life of repentance of sins. Tax collectors, shepherds, villagers, they all went out to the desert to be baptized as a sign of repentance and longing for the coming king. This is one of the strangest pieces of Jesus's ministry. It rested on the foundation built by John the Baptist and also all the other prophets before him, but most closely, it just rested on that ministry. Jesus doesn't arrive in a vacuum. He doesn't create a movement out of nothing. No, the way to the hearts of the people was paved by John the Baptist. He was a lone voice. He cried out. He faithfully preached. And his proclamation and his whole life purpose from birth was to point people to the rescuer and the Messiah when he came. And so when John the Baptist's moment arrived, he didn't waver. As Jesus approached him at the start of his ministry, John declared, there is the Lamb of God who carries the sins of the world. He is the one we've waited for. Go and follow him. He's the one the human heart was created to adore and to know and to be near. You've repented already. Now go be with him and be restored. That was the ministry of John the Baptist. That was what he got to do. That's who he got to be. He got to baptize Jesus himself and fulfill this incredible task, and he did it so well. But not long after that amazing moment, John is arrested for for being faithful and being even resistant to oppression and wickedness. What started as a, as a long-promised life, a life full of purpose and power and mission, ends pretty quickly in a jail. His followers continue on now following Jesus, but his ministry is at a dead end. 
And John the Baptist is left wondering after the crowds are gone and the, the highs of ministry fade, he wonders, will God do this thing? Is Jesus really the one? Is this what the kingdom feels like? He sends some of his faithful disciples to Jesus to ask them this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you the one we waited for? Or do we need to wait and look for someone else? John the Baptist is actually a lot like his father, Zechariah, who, when he heard the promise from an angel that his wife, Elizabeth, would have a child, said, how do I know this will happen? Can you give me a sign? John the Baptist is also much like his predecessor, Elijah, who wondered to God, why have you abandoned me? He wonders that even after he withstood the pressure of a divine shootout with the gods of Jezebel, Elijah essentially checked himself into a cave to simply die. And he sat there waiting for something more from God. John the Baptist, like his father, like his hero, found himself longing and doubting amidst the trial of his life. While his life began with promise, And within the mission he was given, he thrived, even in the desert. And even as his key moments in his life were handled with great success. After all, he correctly pointed people to Jesus and saw many people that he led to repentance follow Jesus with belief. But now, however, the oppressors he expected Jesus to conquer had shackled him into a cell. Are you the one we longed for? Or should we look for someone else? John the Baptist captures my imagination and my heart because in his captivity, he reflects my heart and moments of my story and probably moments of yours too. I'm sure you've known trials amidst mission when through circumstances beyond your control, you see the unstrategic unraveling of everything you've worked to build. Bridges to the homeless destroyed, relationships with neighbors abruptly over, where the mission God called you to becomes a dead end. Even after thriving opportunities that were God-given, now nothing is happening and you are in pain. That the ceasing of the mission isn't just that it isn't painful just because it's not happening, but you yourself are now in chaos and stress and agony. You're now definitely not making that imaginary cover of Missional Community magazine. And in in that moment, you might ask, Jesus, are you and your kingdom the one I long for? Or should I look elsewhere? I'm also sure you've made sacrifices. You've welcomed people and children into your homes until the moments of celebration surrendered to the way of grief. You might say, I was giving, I was generous, I gave everything, I answered the call, and here I am, walking worthy of that call. Jesus, are you in your kingdom the one I longed for, or should I look elsewhere? Also, when we're in the season of a desert where the voice of God seems unintelligible, and his hand in our lives invisible, 
when after years of knowing his love, you can hardly utter a phrase of worship to him. Jesus, are you and your kingdom the one I long for, or should I look elsewhere? In those moments, we often take our place in the lineage of John the Baptist. He's not jealous of Jesus. He's just frustrated. He simply wants to know, is Jesus the real deal? Is this really worth it? Is this what it's supposed to feel like? Is it supposed to feel this low, this defeated, this humiliating? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor, writer, and ultimately a casualty of World War II, he wrote in his Christmas sermon, God in a Manger, and he wrote to this very reality, and he wrote it from even within a concentration camp. Uh, This is what he said. He said, just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can scarcely withstand it, the Christmas message comes to tell us that all our ideas are wrong, and that what we take to be evil and dark is really good, and light because it comes from God. Our eyes are at fault, he says. That's all. God is in the manger. Wealth in poverty. Light in darkness. No evil can befall us. Whatever men may do to us, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. See here what Bonhoeffer is getting at is that the birth of Jesus, this announcement and the reality of joy, nails into the foundation of the world this truth. God is in the mess. God is in our mess. He's in our community's mess. He's in our nation's mess. Jesus was born, not just figuratively, but literally into the low, the vulnerable, the disastrous, and the unmet expectation. God is in the manger. Now, now Jesus responds to John's question that his disciples ask, Are you the one we waited for? Should we find someone else? And Jesus responds by healing amidst the mess. The sick and the wounded and the blind and the oppressed. And then Jesus affirms John John the Baptist's identity as, as his messenger. And the prophecy from Isaiah, Jesus does all of that. And then he goes on to tell the crowds around him that there's not a better prophet in the world than John the Baptist, and there never has been. He's even more than a, than a prophet. Jesus says that, that his life and his person purpose don't have a single match. The man who ate bugs and led a nondescript revival in the desert and now awaits death at the whim of a false king, Jesus says he is exactly who God made him to be and how God designed his life. That what John the Baptist is experiencing knowing is exactly what God intended and how God intended to meet him. Returning to Bonhoeffer, uh, he goes on to say this. He said, God travels wonderful ways with with human beings. 
but he does not comply with the views and the opinions of people. God does not go the way that people want to prescribe for him. Rather, his way is beyond all comprehension, free and self-determined beyond all proof. Where reason is indignant, where our nature rebels, where our piety anxiously keeps us away, that is precisely where God loves to be. There, God confounds the reason of the reasonable. There, he aggravates our nature, our piety. That is where he wants to be, and no one can keep him from it. Only the humble, Bonhoeffer writes, believe him and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair. The humble, Bonhoeffer says, just to get that, believe him and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair, that he takes what is little and lowly and makes it marvelous. And that is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. Bonhoeffer concludes, God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. Bonhoeffer is saying, God chooses people and he performs his wonders where we least expect. God in a manger. God is near the lost, the unseemly, the weak, the broken. And this church is joy. This is the wonders of his love. God is near to you and he is near to me. In the jail, in the hospital, in the foster care system, in the pastor's office, in the lying and in the waiting, in the welfare line and on the comfy couch on an isolated street in a nice home far away from the unruliness of the city, there God performs wonders. He comes and no one can keep him from coming. No one can keep him from getting near. Because in the the story of the birth of Jesus, we see that it's to you a child is born. To you a son is given. To you Jesus has come to the ones we would least expect. He's come to me. He's come to you. He's come to the world. See, joy is found at the dead end. Even the dead end of mission, where the longing for another heaven meets the presence of heaven on earth. I invite you to pray through that reality in your own life today. Wait, before you go, I just want to say a few things about a new resource that's come out recently. 
called The Gospel Basics for Kids. It's an amazing resource that we hope that you'll check out. It's for preschool-aged children, and it guides these kids through discussions and story and music and crafts and illustrations and coloring sheets, all to introduce these young children to the important discipleship uh, realities of gospel, identity, rhythms, and essentially the way that we teach and train and disciple adults, we're doing it for kids because our children are not the disciples of the future, they're the disciples of today. And so go to saturatetheworld.com or amazon.com to learn more about the gospel basics for kids and get your copy.